Okay, so chapter 14, we're going to look at one galaxy. Chapter 15, we're going to look at billions of galaxies. So this is sort of the way we did stars, right? First, we looked at our sun because we knew so much more about it. And it gave us a background to talk about other, other stars. Well, similarly, when we do galaxies, we know our galaxy is the one we're in. Hopefully, we know a little bit more about it. And that will help us in terms of understanding possibly some of the other galaxies. So, nice picture here to start off with is not our galaxy. Even though the chapter title is the Milky Way Galaxy, that's not our galaxy because our galaxy is quite difficult to see. Mainly because we're sitting in the middle of it. So we're stuck in the middle of our galaxy. We're out, oh, a good amount, good ways. About two-thirds to three-quarters of the way out from the center. So the center of a galaxy here, you know, we're out towards one of these spiral arms way out here. But we're stuck in the middle of it. And it's hard to tell what something is like when you're stuck in it. So if we want to map out you know, block or hull from this room, how do we do it? That's essentially what we're doing in the galaxy. We're stuck in one point in the galaxy, and that's the only place we can observe from. If we could take that magical spaceship ride and travel you know, hundreds of thousands of light years out and look back down on our galaxy, it would be very easy to get a map of it. But we can't do that. So if we're stuck in here, you know, how are we going to map out the knockout blocker hall? There's some windows we can look at, so we can tell what's going that way and what's going this way, but we're kind of stuck. If we can't leave the room, we can't go out to that side. So I can't tell you how far does it go. I can't tell you how far up it goes. Is it a 20-story building? We know it isn't, but is it? I mean, if you're stuck in this room, can you see up there? You can't see up there to tell. You know, can't put your head out the window. You, know, so you can look out the window, but you can't put your head out and peek. You wouldn't be able to tell. You might guess by looking at the building across the way. Well, maybe it's similar to that building. Well, that's what we have to do with galaxies. We can guess that we're similar to ours. There are some ways to map the galaxies that we can look at different types of radiation that penetrates. We can map them out in radio waves. So we can try to get some maps of the galaxy. But it's very difficult to see when we're stuck inside the galaxy. And especially a galaxy like ours, the galaxy has a lot of gas and dust in it. And if you recall, dust is very good at absorbing light. So when you're trying to look through something that's very dusty, it's hard to see. So if we're out here someplace, the stars that you're seeing are right in here, right around us. When you go out at night and look at all those stars, you're not seeing stars from all over the entire galaxy. In fact, most of the part of the galaxy over here is not even visible to us. You're seeing mostly the stars, you know, a few, few hundred light years around us. The stars are 100,000 light years. That's mostly what you're seeing. You're not seeing the entire galaxy when you go out and look at the stars at night. You're seeing just this little small section right around us. All right, well, let's go on and see what we're going to talk about. First of all, we're going to talk about our galaxy and measuring it. So how can we make some kind of measurements of our Milky Way? How can we understand its structure? Again, we're stuck inside it. It's harder to do that than it is to look at other galaxies. I can look at another galaxy and I can see its structure. When you're stuck inside something, that's a lot harder to do. How did the Milky Way form? Well, we'll see that probably very similar to how the solar system formed. Right, had a big cloud of gas and dust, except you're doing it on many scales larger than talking about our solar system, which formed a single star. If you do that on a much grander scale, you can actually consider the formation of the Milky Way. Our galaxy is a spiral galaxy, like the one I showed you in the first picture. So where did the spiral arm come from? Good question. 
So we're still trying to figure that one out. Um, why some galaxies have spiral arms and others don't. There's some theories, but nothing that's really great yet in terms of figuring out how the spiral arms are formed in the first place. And then weighing our galaxy, how do we figure out how much mass our galaxy is? How much matter is there? We can sit there and look and we can count up all the stars, we can count up all the nebulae, and we can get an estimate of our mass. And one of the things we're going to find out is that there's a big problem. When we measure the mass of our galaxy, with what we measure, with what we see in terms of visible light, our galaxy shouldn't be here. There's not enough mass to hold it together. Even with a 4 million solar mass black hole at the center, not even close to enough matter, the stars are moving way too fast for that and they should all just, they should all be spreading out into space and should have done so long ago. So what's going on with our galaxy? And not just our galaxy, but actually lots of other galaxies. And that's something that's the, called uh, dark matter. There's actually another component to the galaxy of material that we can't even see. As one possibility to explain it, to explain how the stars move. Another possibility that I'll mention is that maybe gravity works differently on such a big scale. Maybe we just don't understand gravity when we're talking about galaxy size things. Maybe, galaxy, maybe gravity is actually different. You know, something Einstein didn't consider. So maybe there's another, not like we were looking for gravity on a very small scale to talk about a black hole, you know, way down to pinpoint size. Maybe you need a different theory of gravity when you're talking about things that are hundreds of hundreds of thousands of light years in size. Maybe gravity behaves differently. Just as good of a possibility as, you know, perhaps having all this dark matter that we still cannot detect except gravitationally. And then we'll go and look at our center of our galaxy. As I said, you can't see that right now, at least not visible. Um, if you look off towards the south in the later part of the evening right now, it's there. It's not going to stand out to you, so don't go sitting there expecting this big glow for the center of our galaxy. That's because of all that dust blocking it out. We can see it in radio waves. If you point a radio telescope down there, it'll, be, it'll go off the charts. That's a lot of radio energy being emitted from our galactic center because that penetrates through all that dust. It doesn't get affected by the dust and it actually comes through. All right, so what do we see? Here's sort of our estimate of our galaxy. Here we are here. Here we are looking outward or looking inward towards the center of our galaxy. That might be about what we see. And in fact, this is what we see with the sky from inside. This is how we see our galaxy. So you have to imagine how you're taking the information from this. That's what we see. That's the actual observation. If I take a picture of the galaxy from inside of it, that's what I see. How do I go from that to a spiral galaxy? Looks like a nice spiral galaxy to me, right? No. You don't see any spiral arms there, do you? You've got real good imagination if you do. You don't see any spiral. There's no spiral structure. But we do see some other galaxies that we look at almost edge on that look very similar to this that give us some clues. So we're sort of using other indirect methods to really try to understand what our galaxy looks like. But the big problem is that we see is that we're trying to look at it from inside. So we see lots of stars when we look in certain directions. So it means that there's a lot of stars. Our galaxy must be a flat disk. We do know that. Because when we look in this direction, we see a lot of stars. But if I try to look the other directions, opposite to the Milky Way, there's many fewer stars. Still some, because Earth is not quite to scale here. The Earth would be you know, beyond microscopic here. You need more than an electron microscope to be able to pick it up to the scale of our galaxy. 
And there are stars, you know, many, many stars. It's actually, you know, many uh, hundreds of parsecs thick. So there's lots of stars up above us and below, but fewer in number. If you were to count all the stars in this direction, count all the stars in this direction, you'd see a lot more. If you were to count the stars in these two directions, you'd see a lot less. So that's one of the problems, again, with being within the ga- stuck within the galaxy <coughs> and trying to figure out what it looks like. So we're stuck with looking at that and then looking around, trying to make comparisons with other galaxies. So our galaxy is a spiral. Uh, we've learned that. These are some other spiral galaxies. Here's one that I gave as sort of one that I gave you as an example. We're looking at it almost edge on. And it looks vaguely similar to the Milky Way galaxy, except on a much smaller scale. Milky Way galaxy stretches across the sky. This stretches across a very small portion of a telescope. But the pattern looks rather similar to what we see from our own galaxy. Some of them we get to see a lot more detail. Here's one where we're looking down. So instead of looking on the edge here, we've moved up and we're looking at another one and we're looking down from this angle, pointing down from the top above it. And then we can see the great spiral arm stretching out. And another one here, sort of an in-between phase. Here you're looking face on. You're seeing the entire spiral. Here you're seeing just the edge portion. Here you're seeing it kind of tilted. You can still get some idea of the spiral arms around it with the center and then the uh, rest the rest of it around there. So just some other examples and we sort of use some of these ideas to compare looking at other spiral galaxies to get a better understanding of what ours is like. <coughs> but that is inaccurate in some ways because it's like looking at another building. Right? If you're in a building and you want to figure out what it's like and you look out and see three other buildings that all look the same, does that mean your, your building necessarily looks like them? Maybe you're the oddball. So there are other measurements that we'll make as well to try to really better understand our galaxy. So William Herschel did some of the first measurements of this back in the later part of the 18th century. And what he did was what I mentioned. He looked out in all different directions on the sky and counted how many stars he saw. So he used his telescope, pointed out here, you know, I see so many stars. Pointed this direction, I see so many stars. Some directions you saw more stars, some directions you had less. So his measurements had us, this was his galaxy. So we were not quite at the center. Uh, Center maybe be over here a little bit more. But we certainly had the idea that it was flattened. That there were many more stars when you looked in certain directions, here and here, than when you looked in other directions. If you looked this way or this way, you saw far fewer stars. So he's getting the idea of what our galaxy looks like, but still losing a lot of information because he didn't understand about dust. It was long before dust had been detected in our galaxy. <coughs> and that dust blocks out light of, star, light of the stars. So if this is us here, he's seeing pretty good around us here. He's not, not doing too bad over here, but as you get closer and closer to the center of the galaxy, which is way off to the scale here, he hasn't even gotten close to the center of our galaxy, then all, those, all the light from those stars has been blocked by dust and we can't see them. So that, has re- that really threw off Herschel's early measurements of trying to count stars. It's a good method to try to use because it will give you an idea of the shape of our galaxy, 
but we have to we didn't understand at the time how dust was affecting our the visibility of those stars. So we need some other ways to determine distances. That's the only way we're going to map out the galaxy is if we actually get some ways to determine distances a little bit further away than just right around our own solar neighborhood. Parallax worked out to a few hundred, a few hundred uh, light years. Um, spectroscopic parallax went off a little bit further, but still couldn't cover the entire galaxy. <coughs> mm. Excuse me. So. We've talked about a couple of these uh, objects before. We talked about novae and supernovae. Um, supernovae are what are called, uh, and novae are called cataclysmic variables. So it's a cataclysmic event. It's an explosion that actually occurs. So it could be a nova. It could be the explosion on the surface of a white dwarf star. That's a cataclysmic event. It's a one time, typically a one-time event, or maybe recurring on very long time frames. Supernova, that's a star tearing itself apart. That pretty much is a one-time event. But those are variable stars that get brighter and then fainter, but they really only do it either once or on a very, very long time period. There are other stars whose luminosity varies uh, more regularly. They get brighter and they get fainter, but they don't get tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of times brighter and then go back to their very faint uh, level. They get brighter, they might get twice as bright, and then go back to where they were and get twice as bright in a very, very regular pattern. And as opposed to a cataclysmic variable, these are intrinsic variables. These are really stars that are varying in their brightness. So there are stars that are really, in many cases, and in fact in the case of the two I've mentioned there, the RR Lyrae stars, And the Cepheids are really stars that are actually pulsating. So they're stars that are, um, let's go back, a, go back a couple chapters. The sun is in equilibrium, right? It's balanced. It's producing just enough energy and that exactly balances gravity. There's an area on the HR diagram where stars can become unstable. That means they can produce too much energy a little bit they expand, but they're so big it takes a little bit of time for them to expand. They get brighter. That cools them off and they contract, but they do it on much longer time frames. Instead of almost staying perfectly in balance as the sun does or any main sequence star, they take a lot longer time to do it. So they might take a day, they might actually get brighter and then get fainter. And they're actually, the star is actually changing in size. It's getting bigger and it's getting smaller. And that causes the brightness to change. And two of those types that we see are the RR Lyrae, which is named after a star, a variable star in the constellation of Lyra, uh, the harp. And the other one are the Cepheids, which are named after um, one of the stars in the constellation where they were first discovered, uh, the constellation of Cepheus, one of the circumpolar constellations in the northern sky, but not one of the brighter, more prominent ones. So these are two types of stars that really are varying, that are really literally changing their brightness. So there's nothing else involved. There's no explosions involved. There's no other star necessary to be involved. It can just be a single star that just pulsates and gets bigger and smaller, bigger and smaller, and therefore brighter, fainter, brighter, fainter on a very regular period. And what we might see, this is an RR Lyrae star. If we look at its brightness on the top frame there, 
has a period of about half a day to a day and it'll get brighter. Not a lot brighter, maybe twice as bright and then it gets fainter again and then twice as bright and then fainter. But a very, very regular period taking about, in this case, is shown about half a day for it to get brighter and fainter. So that, again, is it just it pulsating? It's just pulsating, getting a little bit larger and brighter. Then as it tries to reach back to equilibrium, it got too big, it's cooled off. Now that less energy is being produced, it collapses back down, and it reaches this instability area where it begins to pulsate. Um, a Cepheid variable is something like this, um, much longer time frames. This one is actually a period of what, about two, about three days. So it takes it about three days from brightness, again about twice as bright, to, a, to about, about three days to get back to the same brightness. Now the Cepheids vary, the RR Lyrae stars are all about the same. All take about a half a day to a day to go through their cycle. The Cepheids take between one day and a hundred days. So there's some of these stars that really get unstable to the point where they expand out a lot. So they're expanding out for, for, for a month, month and a half. And then they finally reach a limit and they start to contract back down. Cepheids, again, the Cepheids are a much larger time frame. Now the image on the bottom is actually showing you one of these stars and showing you the brightness difference. You notice that all these stars are doubled. That's not because they're all double stars or binary stars. That's because you're looking at uh, two images overlaying each other. So you take an image here, you take the same image of the same part of the sky and you just shift the two a little bit and look at them both together. <coughs> so most of these stars are all the same brightness because this star is the same as this star. One was taken here, one was taken a couple days later. The stars typically don't change in brightness except for this one here that's boxed in the center. You can see how one time it's much, much brighter and the other time it's much fainter. That star has actually changed in brightness over that time period. So two different types of stars and what we're going to find out is that these can actually help us in determining distances. So being able to find these, first of all, they're stars that can be identified at even larger distances. They tend to be rather bright stars so we can find them even when they're far away. And we can use this variability to actually relate it to the distance. Now where they occur is, here's our HR diagram, still not done with it yet, we're heading out into galaxies and we're still seeing it. Here was our main sequence. There are the RR Lyrae stars, are all form right in about here. They're all about the same brightness. So they're all about a hundred times brighter than the sun. That's great because they're bright stars, means we can see them when they're further away, right? We want to be able to see things that are further away to be able to determine distances. The other thing is that they're all about the same brightness. So if I can identify one and identify a star as an RR Lyrae variable, I all of a sudden know how bright it is. I know its luminosity. If I know its luminosity, I can determine its distance. So as soon as I find an RR Lyrae star, I know to a pretty narrow range, they're all within this narrow range. It's not like they go from you know, here to here like the Cepheids. We have to use a different method for them. Could be you know, 100 times brighter than the sun, could be 100,000 times brighter than the sun. That doesn't help you too much with distances directly. But these are all about the same. So once I find one, I can immediately determine a distance to it. 
and that has been a great help. These stars can be seen at much larger distances around our galaxy than a typical star like the Sun. Now I sort of mentioned the uh, balance. Right on the main sequence is pretty much where everything is in balance, that gravity and pressure are balanced perfectly. So pressure is pushing outward because of all that energy generation trying to rip that star apart. Gravity is trying to pull it down and pull it to a black hole. Well guess what, the Sun has both of those going on right now. The energy generation wants to tear the Sun apart right now. The gravity wants to pull it down to a black hole right now. They're perfectly balanced. And the Sun will stay perfectly balanced for another 5 billion years. So that's on the main sequence. But as it goes through later stages of its life, they become larger and there's this part of the HR diagram called the instability strip where the stars tend to oscillate around. They don't, um, they don't stay in a very good state of balance. That means they'll produce too much energy, they'll get bigger, they'll actually expand a significant size. That'll cool them off and they'll coll collapse back down. Produce more energy again. Cool, bigger, cool off, stop producing ener as much energy and go back down. And those will form very large areas when stars pass through here through this part of the HR diagram. And as you recall, stars like the Sun might eventually do that as the Sun goes through its life. It'll come up to a red giant phase and then it comes down to that horizontal branch which actually is right about here with the RR Lyrae stars. So the Sun could eventually become one of those and become a great variable star. Uh, larger stars might actually go through this other part, the Cepheid variable part of the instability strip. So. <clears throat> but the big thing with them is again using them to determine distances. Our, our Lyrae stars, I already told you, they're all the same brightness. They're all about a hundred times the brightness of the Sun. Cepheids can vary from the shortest period ones being about a little over a hundred, a couple hundred times brighter than the Sun. The longest period ones being maybe a hundred thousand times brighter than the Sun. But there's a relationship between them. And about a hundred years ago it was found that there was a very nice relationship that the longer the pulsational period, the longer it took to vary, the brighter the star. So if it took a, star, a Cepheid variable that varied with a period of one or two days would be a relatively faint one. One that took 60 or 100 days would be a relatively bright one. And there was a pretty good there's some variation there, but a pretty good line so that I could tell you <coughs> if I could observe a Cepheid and I could observe it to have a period of 10 days, then I can pretty much go up here. Where does that fall on this curve? And that tells me, well, it's so many times brighter than the sun. I can tell what its luminosity is. Again, once we get the luminosity, we automatically get the distance. So determining the luminosity is the, the key. Once we can determine that, if we can find a way to determine luminosity, without needing any other information other than how the star varies is very important for being able to determine distances much further out in the universe. So this is how we get the distances. Again, we know the luminosity of an RR Lyrae star. Once we identify it as an RR Lyrae star, I immediately know how bright it is. So I know its luminosity. Can I get its apparent magnitude? That's the other key I need, right? I gotta have how bright it appears to be. That's the easy one though. All I gotta do is go out and look at how bright it is and compare it to other stars. And we can compare it to stars of known magnitude and say, well, here's how bright this star appears to be. Here's how bright it really is. <clears throat> the difference between those two 
allows us to calculate the distance. Cepheids, not quite as simple because you've got to go through an extra step. You have to go through that extra step of using the period luminosity relationship that said that as the period got longer, the luminosity got brighter. So you had to figure out what is the period. Alright, I can say it's so, it takes so long to go through its cycle. How bright is it? Once I get that luminosity, then I can go ahead and continue on as I did with the RL Lyrae star and determine its distance. But either one of these will give us a really good way of determining distances to stars. They're very bright stars. RL Lyrae star is about 100 times brighter than the sun. Cepheids, maybe 100,000 times brighter than the sun for some of the largest ones. That means I can see them over very large distances. So instead of being stuck with stars to measure parallax directly, right? they had to be pretty close to us in order to do that. In order to do the other ones, um, I needed to be able to get a spectrum of them, a spectroscopic parallax. I had to be able to get a, a detailed enough spectrum to be able to classify the star and determine its spectral class. I don't have to do that here. All I have to be able to determine is how long it takes to go through its its cycle. How long it takes to go through bright to faint. And once I do that, I can then determine the distances. So being able to identify a star as one of these two types is going to be our next method in our distance ladder in being able to determine distances within the galaxy. And then working out, we actually, this is the way the first galaxies were actually discovered First galaxies were actually discovered about a hundred, not quite a hundred years ago now, um, when Cepheid variables were actually discovered in a, a nearby galaxy, and that was the first time that we actually knew a galaxy was a galaxy, and that our our own galaxy, that the Milky Way, wasn't the entire universe. So it's only been about a hundred years that we've known that our galaxy was not the entirety of the universe. That we could actually see that there were other objects that were well beyond. And that had to do with using Cepheids to be able to determine the distances to, in this case, the Andromeda galaxy and find out that it was well outside the reach of our own uh, Milky Way galaxy. Alrighty. So, but how did these help us? Let's go back. That was finding another galaxy. How do we learn about our own galaxy from these? Well, our Lyrae stars are found in lots of globular clusters. Globular clusters, remember, are those very old clusters of stars. So those are stars where clusters like the, where stars like the sun are just reaching the end of their lives. They are scattered around our galaxy. And sort of like a big halo around it. So you have our galaxy, our galaxy, our center of our galaxy is about here. And these globular clusters are scattered all around it. Well, since there's lots of RR Lyrae stars in these, if I can determine the distance to one of those RR Lyrae stars in a globular cluster, <coughs> I essentially just determine the distance to that globular cluster. And that means I can make more of a three-dimensional map of what our galaxy really looks like. So instead of just counting stars, which are pretty much confined down to the central portion here, now I'm able to look further out. I can actually see beyond to the other side of the galaxy a little bit better because I'm not looking through as much dust when I'm looking up and out of the galaxy and gives us a much better picture of what our galaxy really looks like. 
at least in terms of extent. So you can see that using this method actually shows us that we're not near the center of our galaxy at all. We're actually well out from the center of our galaxy. And gives us a measurement of about 8,000 parsecs between the distance between the sun and the center of our galaxy. 8,000 parsecs would be about 25,000 light years. And about 30,000 parsecs for the extent of our galaxy. 30,000 parsecs pushing 100,000 light years for size. Much, much smaller than Herschel had done with his star counts. So a much smaller amount, a much smaller amount he was able to count because he was only, he was confined just to looking at those stars right here around the sun. That's all he could measure because of dust. Now that we can look out further at these objects that can be seen at much greater distances, much brighter objects, the, the, the globular clusters, we can actually begin to measure and map out what the true extent of our galaxy is like. And find out really where we are. So we're nowhere near the center of our galaxy. Um, so sort of continuing on the work of Copernicus. Remember we used to be, the Earth used to be at the center of the solar system, which was the center of the whole universe. Copernicus changed that and put the sun at the center of the solar system, the sun at the center of everything. <coughs> and even at Herschel's time, we still had the sun pretty close to the center. That's what our measurements were showing at least. But now we're putting the sun out even further. And the sun isn't at the center of the galaxy and therefore not even at the center of the universe at all either. So it's sort of putting us more again, putting us in our place again. That we're not at the, the Earth isn't at the center of anything. We've already learned that. Now we've got the sun isn't even at the center of anything. The sun is about uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of the way out from the center of the galaxy. All right. So this is where we come back to our distant ladder. Again, we're going to see this a couple times over the next few, next couple chapters as we have a few more spaces to add on the top of this. But going back over it, we have radar ranging. That works only if you're really close. That means I can send a radar signal to Mars, a radar signal to uh, Venus, and bounce it off them and determine distances directly. We know how fast it's going. We can measure the amount of time it takes for the return signal to come. And therefore, I can figure out the distance. But that doesn't work. We can't send a radar signal to another star or anything further out. There's no way to detect it and get it beyond about an astronomical unit. So about within the inner solar system is really the only place that works. The only direct method of getting distances is stellar parallax. So that's the actual shifting of the stars as the Earth moves around and orbits around the Sun. So the, you observe the star from here. You wait six months. Now the Earth has moved two astronomical units from this side of the Sun, one astronomical unit away, to this side of the Sun, another astronomical unit away. <coughs> and the position of that nearby star will then appear to shift relative to uh, more distant stars. That works out to about 200 parsecs, maybe about 600 to 700 light years. That's just really our own nearby stellar neighborhood. So you can't get a lot, you can't get a lot of stars there, but it's important because everything else really builds on this. We have to have some distances in order to use these other methods. Spectroscopic parallax we did last time, we mentioned it a couple times ago. Uh, that good out to about 10,000 parsecs, about 30,000 light years. Chunk of our galaxy, but not even getting out. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years in size. 
So couldn't even measure all the stars at the distance of our galaxy with a spectroscopic parallax. But now we're going to jump out a lot more. These variable stars are much brighter. And these are the RLIRAs and the Cepheids. We can get out to, instead of talking thousands of parsecs, MPC is megaparsecs or million parsecs. So you're getting out to about 25 million parsecs, about 75, 80 million light years. So we're still not getting close to the edge of the universe and being able to measure distances. If we're at about, what did I say, about 80, 80 million light years. The size of the universe, we're talking close to, oh, what is it, about 13.8 billion light years. So we're still only looking at our own neighborhood in terms of looking at the universe. We're not getting very far out. We're really stuck with just this very, very small area, even using these very bright stars. They would not be visible at these large distances. There's a couple other steps that will help us get out there and try to measure distances. But one of the big problems you have to recall is that every step kind of builds on the previous one. So any errors <coughs> in determining parallaxes, direct parallaxes become errors in building in spectroscopic parallaxes, which can become errors in this one. And the errors are building upon each other as we work our way up this distance ladder. But we're still very close in to what we, in terms of what we can see. All right, so what does our galaxy look like? Here's an artist's conception of our galaxy, uh, showing the different parts of it. We see the globular clusters kind of scattered all around it. Uh, there's our sun, maybe about three quarters, two thirds of the way out. And the gas and dust is confined to the center. So what we see is our galaxy. We see a couple of different components. We see there's the center. There's a center. We'll come back to that at the end. But there is a galactic center. There is a sort of a bulge around it. A bulge around the center of the galaxy. So that bulge of stars here. So the galactic center is buried deep down in here. And there's this bulge of material around it. And then further out, as we look at towards the edge, you have the spiral arms. Spiral arms is where we are. That's where the sun is located, is near one of the spiral arms. And that is where we see things like uh, the emission nebulae. We even say the sun. We see the hot stars. Are all located in the spiral arms. We don't see those around as much towards the central portions of the galaxy. And then, kind of around the whole thing, is a halo of the galaxy. Now, I've drawn it two dimensionally. Of course, you got it, that halo is a big sphere surrounding our galaxy. That's where the globular clusters are. So, the globular clusters are scattered throughout this halo. And that's probably giving us a sign of what our galaxy looked like a long, long time ago. That our galaxy at one point was a great big sphere. And that it has collapsed much as the solar system collapsed as the sun formed and flattened everything down to a disk. The galaxy did the same thing. So the galaxy might have at one point been this great sphere. Something started to collapse and it collapsed down to 
And you can think about, you've got a galactic center here, much like the sun, a lot of the material went to the galactic center. And then you have all these uh, stars, you know, many billions of stars orbiting around that, much the way the planets orbit around the sun, between the planets and the asteroids and the Kuiper Belt objects and all of the other objects in our solar system that we see. So those are some of the main parts, the center, the bulge, the spiral arms are actually part of what we call the disk of the galaxy. So the disk, the spiral arms are within the disk. So center, bulge, disk, halo, and the spiral arms are a part of that disk. So those are the different parts that we see in our galaxy and that we now are able to interpret based on some other types of measurements that we've been able to make. Alrighty. Now this is giving us sort of an idea of what we're seeing in the galaxy, giving us an idea of how it formed. So the, the halo and the globular clusters were some of the earliest parts of the galaxy to form. We know that the halo is pretty much a great big sphere. The globular clusters scattered within that halo pretty much make up a great sphere as well. We know that they're very old because we can measure the ages of the globular clusters. Right? We can look at the globular clusters and we can find out what stars are still on the main sequence and they're all stars like the sun or fainter. So these globular clusters are clusters that are 10, 12 billion years old. Now we're getting back a good ways towards the age of the, age of the universe. So 10 or 12 billion years old, they're scattered around. What did our galaxy look like 10 or 12 billion years ago? Well, it didn't look like it does today. It hadn't collapsed to a bulge and a disk and all that material. It was more of a great big halo of material. In the halo, there are no stars forming. All the star formation that occurred in the halo happened a long time ago and there's no more gas and dust left there. So all the gas and dust that was in the halo has since collapsed down into the disk. It's now part of the disk of the galaxy and that means there's no stars forming in, those, in that part of the galaxy now. So all the stars that we see in the halo, the globular clusters are all very old. You know, the youngest stars are 10, 12 billion years old. We don't see any very old stars there. All the star forming things, so all the times we look at star forming regions on the photo of the day and we see emission nebulae and star forming regions, all of that is within the disk of our galaxy. That's where all the star formation is going on. So that's where we see the gas clouds, that's where we see the dust clouds, that's where we see the emission nebulae. That's where we see the very young stars, those O stars, the very hot ones that don't live very long. They're all trapped in the disk because by the time, from the time they form to the time they die, they don't have time to go anyplace. Stars do slowly move and wander around, but they're not even going to have time to lose the di leave the disk or the spiral arms where they originally formed. The galactic bulge is kind of a mix. It's got some parts of the disk here, so some parts of the disk into it, so it has some younger stars, and it has some components of the halo. So the bulge is kind of an in-between area. Disk is very, very young stars, primarily, and the halo is extremely old stars. When you look at the bulge, you get kind of a mixture of the two around the galactic center there as you get much closer to the galactic center. So. Some of the, again, reviewing the parts again, the halo and the globular clusters are the very old regions. This big spherical thing surrounding is the very oldest part. The disk and the spiral arms are the very youngest parts of 
our galaxy and by interpretation any other galaxy we see. When we look out at other spiral galaxies, the disk portions are the youngest. <coughs> mm, excuse me. All right. Now, here's our galaxy again. Doesn't quite look like the same image I showed you a little bit ago of our galaxy. Um, this is this is taken in infrared instead of visible light. Infrared light is much better at penetrating dust. So we can get a much better view of our galaxy. You can definitely see that there's a much brighter area at the center of our galaxy. And as you look towards the center, you still see some dust. Even the infrared isn't, doesn't get through all of the dust. But you can still see some of that, but much less than you get from the optical. In optical, so much of this was blocked out almost completely. So when we look at it in the infrared, we can actually see that and get a little bit better picture of our, of our, ga of our galaxy. And again, that's because of the lack, of, lack of the absorption by dust. The infrared is much better at penetrating that. If we look at it in the radio, we see even more. Um, this part of the sky is actually one of the brightest radio sources in the sky. So if you look at the map the whole sky, it's certainly not one of the brightest stars in the sky. Not one of the brightest visible objects. Not even one of the brightest infrared objects. But when we look in the radio where all of that energy can come straight through, it's really one of the brightest radio objects in the entire sky. Now, I'm going to come back and review this in a little bit, but when we also, when we look at the orbits, the disk is again, much, think of it much like the solar system. The stars in the disk are all orbiting and they're all going around in the same direction. So just like all the planets are orbiting around the sun in the same direction, all the stars in the disk of the galaxy all orbit around the uh, center of the galaxy in, a, in the same direction. They take a little bit longer than it takes the Earth to go around the sun, right? It takes the Earth about a year to go around the sun once. Even to get out to the outer planets, it's taking you know, 200 years to go around the sun once. Um, for the sun to go or make one loop around the center of our galaxy is about 200 million years. So 200 million years. So if you want to live one galactic year, you know, one solar, how long it takes the sun to go around, you've you got, got a couple hundred million of our year, Earth years, to wait. But now that's, the, the orbits are quite different when we look at the halo. The halo are the objects shown in red there, and they don't have any kind of coherent orbit at all with them. One's orbiting in this direction. Another one might be orbiting in this direction. Here's one going this way at fire speeds. Here's one going slower this way. They're moving in no coherent direction at all. So it's really, we're getting an idea, and I'll be going over the formation of the galaxy here shortly, but it's really starting to tell us that our galaxy formed in a couple different stages. And that when we look at the halo and the globular clusters, we see a very early stage where stars were pretty much moving around randomly. There was a great big sphere there and stars moved this way and that way as they formed. There was no coherent rotation to it. As it collapsed down to that disk, then everything, a little bit of average rotation here got magnified just as it did in the solar system and we have all of the planets orbiting around in one direction. Now here we have, once it's collapsed to the disk, all the new stars that form from that material are all going around in the same direction. So we see two different groupings of stars. We see stars that are forming more recently in the disk, all going in the same direction. We see much older stars in the halo that are not. They're all going in random directions. 
and kind of within between if you get to the bulge uh, bulge is still random but has a little bit of an overall rotation with it. It's kind of a co again a combination. It's got that rotation. It's rotating with the rest of the disk but within it it's a little bit more random than the ordered orbits of the of the disk itself. So here's kind of uh, going back to the textbook and summarizing what we see. Uh, if we want to talk about how the galaxy formed we've got to explain all these things that we've just seen. So we look at the disk, the halo, and the bulge. Uh, a good theory of galactic formation has to be able to explain why do we have a flattened disk, why do we have a spherical halo around it, and the bulge something in between. Why does the disk have young and old stars, a big mixture of stars, but the halo have only old stars? No young stars there, not a single one. Why do we see gas and dust in the disk, not in the halo? Why do we see star formation in the disk, not in the halo? Not for at least 10 billion years. So when we say the moon is unchanged in several billion years, okay, the halo of the galaxy is unchanged in 10 billion years. It hasn't changed. Um, we have the orbits we just talked about. The orbits are really pretty much in circular orbits. So not only are those stars moving all in the same direction in the disk, but they're also moving pretty much in circular orbits. Again, go back to the solar system, a lot like the planets orbiting around the sun. The galactic halo, well those are a lot more like the comets. The comets come in every order of random directions around the solar system. They might come from this direction up or down or come from below. And they have pretty much more random orbits. <coughs> we have spiral arms in the disk. Again, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But we don't have any structure in the halo. Just a big blob, essentially a big blob. And then the coloring. If you look at the galactic disk, uh, a lot of blue to it, especially in the spiral arms, are very, very blue. If you look at the halo, it looks very red in color. So again, that's telling you something about the stars that are there. When you see blue in terms of star coloration, that means they're very hot stars. And those hot stars don't live very long. So that's why we don't see any in the halo. Halo's 10 billion years old. That's time for even a yellowish star like the sun to have gone through its entire life. So the only place we can see those very young blue stars are in regions where there's gas and dust and star formation. So what we want to look at is try to explain this, and I'm going to do it similarly in terms of you know, talking, about, talking about how our solar system formed a little bit and use the similar um, similar method to talk about how the galaxy actually formed. So what you start off with is, here's sort of a schematic trying to show how the galaxy might have formed, is that you might have had several gas clouds. Now again, the gas clouds are getting bigger and bigger as we're moving outward. We had a relatively small gas cloud that formed the solar system. Now we have a relatively large gas clouds colliding and you had some stars forming and this was many billions of years ago as these collided you would have had very young stars here and nice hot blue stars <coughs> and as these collided and coalesced you had some overall average very slow rotation but in general the stars were just moving any which way so they were moving any direction they were going this way they were going that way and well, guess what? If you took all of those stars and averaged all their motions together, you might have found a very, very slow rotation in one direction, average rotation. 
but nothing coherent. As it began to collapse, <coughs> the gas and the dust clouds collided. Okay? So if you have these colliding, any gas clouds there, gas clouds are very big relative to their size. They collide together and will start to collapse. They'll collide and lose energy and they fall down towards the center. The stars don't collide. And we can look at that as an example. If we take this room and we took 20 beach balls and started them bouncing around the room, they're going to smash into each other, right? You know, at times they're going to crash into each other. Those would be the gas clouds. They're big. So they're real big compared to how, far, how separate they are. If you want to do the other one, if you want to do stars, you'd do more like a little BB and get 20 BBs bouncing around the room. Are they, you're going to bounce them for a long, long time before you're ever going to see anything collide. Right? I could let them bounce around here. They're never going to bump into each other because there's so much room in here. They're going to pass right by each other and never even know the difference. So the stars don't collide, so the stars remain and that's how these, the halo stars remain out here, all around. You can still see them in a yellowish here. All the stars that had formed early on, they didn't collide together. But all those gas clouds, the beach balls, they kept colliding and starting to form new stars. But as they collided, they'd lose energy and they'd collapse down into the disk. And as they did, that sped up the rotation rate. So we get things rotating faster and faster and we get everything going in the same direction. So this explains a lot of the properties that we see. First of all, it gets rid of all the gas and dust in the outer part of the, in the halo of the galaxy. It's all gone. They collided. They form more stars and they collapse down to the plane. So all the gas and dust that's left is down in here. <laughs> so that explains things like the ages of the stars, the coloring of the stars that we see in the different portions, and why there's no gas and dust. And also the collapse will also explain the rotation. So it explains a lot of those properties that we see. So this is one of the really the best theory that we have right now to explain the origin of the galaxy. How did the galaxy go about forming some sort of collision between perhaps dust clouds or between smaller galaxies that very early on in the history of the universe? That might have been what a galaxy was like a long time ago. And as those collided, they collapsed. Stars just stayed where they were, so those stars that had already formed remain in the halo. You know, they went through their lives just as the other star, just as any other star would, but they remained in the halo. The gas clouds collapsed down, and that's where we still see the formation today. That's where we still see star formation. So it's really very much like we formed our own solar system, except in the solar system we're on a much smaller scale, and we're forming one star at the center and a bunch of planets around it. Now we're forming a big galactic center here, a massive black hole at the center, but still having many, many stars orbiting around it. So here's a better idea of what our galaxy looks like. Now that we use all these different measurements that we can look in the infrared, we can look in the radio part of the spectrum, we can actually then map out our galaxy a little bit better and find out that our galaxy is kind of a spiral galaxy but it's actually a special type of spiral galaxy called a barred spiral. It has a sort of a bar, you can see this almost straight bar going through the center and the spiral arms come off the end of that bar and go around. There's our sun out there uh, from the center, maybe about two-thirds of the way out from the center towards the edge of the, edge of the galaxy. 
But now we have ways to make those measurements and map out the spiral arms. We can look for the spiral arms. We can map out where those very hot stars are. We can map those out. We can map out where the hydrogen gas is in the galaxy and determine where the spiral arms are that way because a lot of the hydrogen gas is concentrated to areas where stars are forming. So that allows us to map them out. So radio emissions will help us with that. And then we'd be able to determine the, what our galaxy looks like. So in, indirectly, can't go see it directly, but this is what we think we would look, look like. If we could take that magical trip, you know, go out in the spaceship uh, in the opposite the direction, not the direction of the Milky Way's there, go out at a 90 degree angle and go out there for you know, 100, travel 100,000 light years out and then look back down on our galaxy. And that's what we think we would probably see from our best measurements right now. So it is a spiral galaxy and has a bulge at the center. And we know that there's a black hole at the center, which I'll mention again when we get towards the very end of this uh, chapter. And our sun being just partway out from, from that. But we know it has spiral arms. The good question is, where do we get the spiral arms from? So how did we form these spiral arms? And that's a very good question. We know, first of all, that they're not rotating with the galaxy. So the spiral arms don't rotate along with the galaxy. They're not, they would wind up very quickly if they rotated along. So the spiral arms are more of a disturbance in the galaxy. And the disturbance rotates, moves actually much slower than the galaxy itself. Now if they were part of the galaxy and they would, they would wind up like this, now remember this takes a long time. I told you that the sun orbits about every 200 million years. But the galaxy is you know, 10, 12 billion years old. Well, let's see, there's a lot of, 10, lot of 200 millions in 10 billion. So the sun would have made lots of rotations. And over billions of years, it would, be, it would be wound up. So there has to be something that keeps this structure spread out a lot more for a much longer period of time. Because otherwise, all the galaxies that we see that were spirals, unless they just formed, maybe they just formed like that, if they were winding up, if everything was moving together, as with the, you know, the planets in the solar system moving around, you'd wrap them up because you'd be moving these parts a lot faster, these parts a lot slower. They can't just rotate that way. They would, they would wind up over a relatively short, astronomically speaking, period of time. You know, a billion years, <clears throat> which is relatively small, would make five ex four or five extra rotations of the sun around the center of the galaxy. So they don't rotate with the galaxy. What they seem to be is actually a density wave. A density wave, you can think of that as like a traffic jam. Right? The traffic jam slowly moves. If you have, a, if you have, a, if you have an area where cars are condensed together, that, that is moving, you know, you move, and, the, and the cars actually are moving through the traffic jam. So over time, it's not the same cars. That jam might last for a long time, but cars are slowly working through their frustrations and getting through the traffic jam and heading out the other side and picking up their speed again. But it's an area where things are condensed more together. And that's where the stars are currently forming. So we look at it as what we call a density wave. Stars move in and out of, the, in and out of it just as cars move in and out of the traffic jam. The jam may stay there, and you've got new cars coming in, and you've got old cars finally getting, getting out of the jam. But over time, the, the jam will actually move too. So the spiral arms do rotate, 
very slowly. Just as that traffic jam might move slowly down the interstate, you know, unless it's due to some kind of accident or something, but it's just due to you know, a couple slow trucks or something. You know, it's mo- slow- the, the jam is moving slowly down the highway as well. But the cars are moving in and out of it, slowly working their way through it, but the jam is moving much slower than the cars themselves are. So the cars are actually moving through it quicker. That's the way we think the star, the galactic spiral arms, actually behave once they form. Again, this hasn't really said how they formed. How did we get that density wave to start in the first place? That, that's a good question. That's what astronomers are still trying to figure out. But in terms of that, once you form that density wave, being able to keep that explains how we can keep the spiral arms going. So stars would form in the spiral arms. You'd have a denser area around here where the spiral arm is forming. And the spiral arms are rotating, in this case, this direction. So they're actually rotating maybe the opposite of what you might uh, might think there. Um, And you have the stars rotating here. And there's the older stars that have worked their way out. Here's the youngest stars very close to the spiral arms. They're the ones that have just formed in this density wave, which is where the material is most compressed. Here's the higher density materials. And then the stars slowly work their way out and will work their way out of the spiral, out of the spiral arm. So our sun probably formed in a spiral arm at one point. It's now worked its way out of a spiral arm and will eventually work its way back into another, another one as it goes through its, its life. So here's an example of the shock waves and looking at this. Um, those, cl- those gas clouds as they condense will be what causes star formation. So here's the first set of very young stars forming. They form all these hot young stars, things that are 20, 30, 40 times the mass of the sun. They don't live for very long, you know, 10 million years. They've gone through their life. They've used up all their energy. They formed iron in their core and they become unstable and they explode. So you start, you get a supernova explosions occurring over here. Not all at once, you know, one this year, a hundred years, a thousand years. Astronomically speaking, you know, a thousand years, a blink of an eye. You know, you don't even think of that. But those new shock waves will actually increase star formation, right? You have now more shock waves coming out, compressing more material, and now you've formed more stars. Here's where your original stars were. They're gone. Now we've formed new stars. But the big thing is, is where do those come in the first place? So where do we actually get spiral arms forming originally? And not well understood. Some of the ideas have to have to do with perhaps collisions between galaxies. And there are models that have been done where you can collide two galaxies together. And if you collide them at the right angle, you can actually stretch material into spiral arms due to that collision. So I'll look at, we'll let you look at that. And I'll show you a couple examples of looking at you know, colliding galaxies and how we can do that you know, theoretically. Can't actually go in the lab and experiment with a couple of galaxies and see how they collide. But we can experimentally make a model galaxy on the computer, collide, collide another model galaxy with it, and see how that works. So this might help with keeping the spiral arms going once they formed, and with keeping them uh, moving around the galaxy in the density waves. But it doesn't yet explain exactly how they formed in the first place. All right, the mass of our Milky Way. How do we determine the mass of the Milky Way galaxy? Well, we do it the same way we measure the mass of anything else. We need something orbiting something else. So if we have the sun orbiting around the Milky Way, 
There's our sun. And it orbits around the Milky Way. We can figure out how far away it is from the center. We can figure out how long it takes the sun to go around once. And we could then use Kepler's third law to figure out the mass. How much mass is there in our galaxy? That works, but that tells us only the mass within the orbit. So it tells me about all of this mass within the sun's orbit, but it doesn't tell me anything about the mass out here or out here <coughs> or beyond the sun's orbit at all. So I can use that to begin to measure and get an idea of the, sun, of the mass. So we could, that'll get me started, but what we can do then is we'll not use the sun. How about if we use a star a little bit further out? Go a little bit further out. What if we can get, out to, the, what if we can get to that most distant star? Just at the very edge of the disk. If we can find that furthest star away, then that should give us a pretty good estimate of the mass. The further out you get, the better estimate you should get, right? Because once you get out to here, well, you got all this mass inside you and you got only a little tiny bit of stuff out beyond. So you can get, as you get further and further out with stars, you can actually get more and more accurate measurements of the mass. But the method is done is the same way. Determine the rotational period. Determine the, um, the distance between the sun and the center of the galaxy. And use that and Kepler's third law to determine the masses. So what we get is, here's about the edge of our galaxy right about here. There's our sun. This is measuring the rotational speed. And we get this pink line as we measure the rotational speed. So once we get all the galaxy out there, there's only those few scattered stars, we should be measuring all of the distance, all of the mass, sorry. And we do that, that's like we do in the solar system. If we measure the orbital periods of Mercury and Venus and the Earth, well, all the mass in the solar system is in the sun. Once you get out to Mercury, you're already outside 99.9% .9 of the mass in the solar system, so the rest of it doesn't really matter. And then you start to see that the planets go slower and slower, right? Mercury orbits the fastest, then Venus, then Earth, they go slower and slower, and you should see this Keplerian motion once you're outside most of the mass of the galaxy. It works for the solar system. It doesn't work in the galaxy. What we measure instead is that stars further out than the sun are actually orbiting faster. So take, moving, zipping around at a higher speed. So the speeds are actually increasing as you get further and further out. As you find those occasional stars that are out there even further, even you know, two, three, four, almost four times as far away from the center of the galaxy as the sun, we think we should be outside all of the mass. There shouldn't be anything else left there. But there's a lot more mass there. Is there something more that we don't know about? Because if so, these should be moving at a much slower speed than the sun, but they're actually moving faster. So what that tells us is that there has to be a lot more matter out there, out beyond that edge, than what, than what we could actually see. A lot more material out beyond here. There has to be not just a few extra stars or a couple black holes, but actually two or three times the mass of the entire galaxy. So what we measure in here? Well, out here, well beyond that, I need another two or three galaxies worth of material to explain the orbits that we see. So that's why I said there were two ways to explain this. One is uh, the dark matter, <coughs> which says that there is this uh, kind of mysterious matter that is out there that interacts only gravitationally. We can't see it. It doesn't emit light or anything. 
but it's out there and it interacts only gravitationally? Or does gravity behave differently when you're talking about distances of 35,000 parsecs? Is gravity behave differently than Newton and Einstein told us? So, I mean, astronomers are looking at both, at both theories. You know, which one, what is right? Is there dark matter? There have been efforts to try to detect that. And with some kinds of success, but not enough to begin to account for all of the material we're missing. Because you think about that, that's a lot of matter. For every star you see, you need two or three more stars of matter outside that. And go count all the stars you see with your eye. Go count all the stars you can see with a telescope. It's a lot of material that you have to use to account for what we actually see. Let me see where we're. So what could we get here? Let's see where I am here. There we go. Yep, I'm going to do these two and then we'll finish up here. So what could this dark matter be? Dark matter means it's got to be dark completely. That means it can't be a big cloud of, of, of dust out in space because it would emit some kind of radio radiation. If it has any molecules in it, it's got any hydrogen in it, we'd be able to detect it. So it has to be dark everywhere. It just means, doesn't mean you just can't see it. It means that it's, you can't see it no matter where you look. You see absolutely nothing. So black holes would be one thing. You could certainly form black holes. Um, you need a lot of them. If it's a stellar mass black hole, meaning, you know, like we talked about Cygnus X1, 10 times the mass of the sun, that's a lot of mass. But we're trying to find hundreds of millions or hundreds of billions of times the mass of the sun. That's a lot of black holes to account for. So we don't think, you know, models don't show there's any way that that many could have been created. Certainly they'd be out there, they'd be very hard to detect, but how could they have formed? Now some of the other things, things like brown dwarfs, uh, white dwarfs, red dwarfs. Remember brown dwarfs where stars, where failed stars didn't quite form? <coughs> white dwarfs at a great distance would hardly be visible. Red dwarfs, well we can see them close to us. There are a lot of the stars that are close to us, but if you get them, you know, thousands of light years away, they're, almost, they're invisible. So that would be a way, but again, that's a lot of material you need to form. Because things like brown dwarfs are, you know, less than a tenth the mass of the sun. Red dwarfs can be similar. I mean, the real small ones are going to be that kind of mass, you know, a quarter of the mass of the sun or less. So for all these mass, all this material that you need, that's a lot of stars. Um, one of the other things that's suggested sometimes is maybe some sort of weird subatomic particles that could be out there in space. Again, you need some kind of evidence for it. We can detect some evidence of black holes. We can detect some evidence of maybe some white dwarfs in terms of how, they inter how things interact out in space. Um, weird subatomic particles. It's one of those things that some of the things you can put forward a nice theory, but there's got to be some way to, to test it. Got to have some way to be able to figure out really what, what it is. And the way we see that is actually through going back to Einstein and general relativity. So we started with general relativity and we'll end up with general relativity today. And we see it as you see a nearby star that you can't see, say a white, say a white dwarf star that has you know, about the mass of the sun. As it passes through, you can't see it, it's going to be completely faint, but when it passes in front of a star, it actually behaves as a lens and it magnifies the light that you see. So you get light from the star coming around one direction, getting bent by that white dwarf and coming towards us. So instead of seeing a very faint star, a very faint star, that star gets brighter. Now, 
Not lots brighter. Here's a very, very, here's an event from 1996. There's a very faint object here and it got brighter. It's still an incredibly faint object. You're seeing a very, very small effect. But making measurements like this could maybe account that there's that many white dwarfs out there that could account for maybe about half the matter that we need to explain this. One of the problems is that this, this, this is the easy part of the problem. We just talk about galaxies. When we start talking about galaxies clusters, it gets even worse. But that's the, that's the next chapter. But when we try to look at that, it'll get even worse. So white dwarfs and this gravitational lensing will explain a little bit of it. And that's something that has been studied now for a couple of decades trying to understand how the stars will move and how we can detect things like just a little bit of, just a little white dwarf moving right in front of that star will actually magnify it. And how many of those can we see? And there's calculations that can be made to try to estimate then how many of those white dwarfs would really be out there. But in terms of what we can see in terms of that, we can, we can find some of the mass, but not everything that we need to explain that rotation curve that we see. So that finishes that section. I'm going to stop there. I think I've got 14.7 to, to go on the center of the galaxy. And I'll pick up that. Is that all I have left? Yeah, 14.7 is all we have left on the galactic center. So I'm going to go ahead. I'll do that tomorrow, finish up 14, and then go on to chapter 15. And like I said, I don't think since we're going to do a lab tomorrow too, there's no way I would have gotten through all of that. Instead of me lecturing on material that you then have to have a test on, the test will be on, on Thursday. So questions, questions? We'll finish up 14 and get on to 15 tomorrow. And then we're going to, the lab tomorrow is going to be doing the, the solar observations. So I'll go through the calculations. I'll do an example for you and let you work on those. I'm going to give you some numbers to work with. And we're going to do a graph that we can start doing the graphs as well. So then that way the rest of the week you can work on the write-up, which will actually be due next, next Monday. Already.